Hello, and welcome to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, A Peaceful March on Washington. The date, January 2021, and my name is Bell Avis. Before I get into the podcast, I also wanted to alert you to additional content at www.conservativehistorian.com and also our book, Conservative Historian Collected Works, available on Amazon in hardcover and Kindle editions. And now, on to our podcast. On May 1st, 1894, an assembly of perhaps 600 unemployed men, designated by the press as Coxey's Army, or as their leader called them, a petition in boots, marched into Washington, D.C. Other names attached to the movement were the Common Wheel of Christ, the term common wheel meaning for the welfare of the public. The leader of this movement and the march's namesake was Jacob S. Coxey, a businessman from Massillon, Ohio. Benjamin F. Alexander, author of Coxey's Army, Popular Protest in the Gilded Age, described the event as follows, quote, Attention, common wheel, forward march. Riding on his Pershone stallion, wearing buckskin frontier attire with the added formal touch of a necktie, Marshal Carl Brown issued the order at 10.15 a.m., the first day of May 1894. The procession of riders, wagons, and at least 600 unemployed men traveling on foot began moving out of Brightwood Park toward the capital district of Washington, D.C. The goddess of peace led the way. The 17-year-old Mamie Coxie, mounted atop a white stallion, adorned with an all-white riding habit, blue cap, and stylish parasol. Behind her rode her father, quote, General, unquote, Jacob S. Coxie, in a fancy black carriage with his second wife, Henrietta, and their two-month-old baby boy named Legal Tender Coxie, unquote. And so began the final leg of Coxie's army that had started from Maslin over a month earlier and marched all the way to the Capitol. According to the Ohio History Central website, quote, Coxie was born on April 16, 1854, in Asselins Grove, Pennsylvania. He received his education in Danville, Pennsylvania, public schools before taking a local mill job. In 1881, Coxie moved to Maslin, Ohio, where he established the Coxie Silica Sand Company. This business operated a sand quarry, unquote. Like many in 1893, the panic and subsequent economic collapse adversely affected his economic fortunes. Before the panic, Coxie had been active in politics, including a stint under the Greenback Party's banner. Not content with a bimetal or even silver-only monetary policy, Coxie wanted to return to the Greenbacks once in use during the Civil War. Not surprisingly, the rise of the Populist or People's Party around 1890 received Coxie's support. When the panic came, Coxie was ready to act. In protest of the federal government's failure to assist the U.S. populace during this economic downturn, Coxie formed a protest march. The group left Maslin with the intention of marching to Washington, D.C. to demand that the United States government, the United States government, assist U.S. workers. As the group marched to Washington, hundreds of more workers joined along the route. Coxie claimed that his army would eventually number more than 100,000 men, though nothing even on the peaks of the march, rarely came close to that final number of 600 that marched into Washington. But Coxie was just one piece of the movement that saw 
quote, marches, unquote, occur throughout the country. Loggers tried to get to Washington from the northwest. Another group set out from the southwest, trailing a circuitous route through Arizona, Texas, and Arkansas. What was different from these western movements, and Coxie himself, was that the only way their marches could be successful was through the use of a train. Coxie, being able to use public roads, was not so inhibited. A critical differentiation, and one with massive ramifications for the future of the Republic, was the focus of all of these marches. As Alexander notes, quote, Coxie's common wheelers of 1894 were not the first unemployed laborers to demand government-run public works jobs, but earlier protesters tended to target city administrations rather than Washington. Unquote. One example occurred in 1873, the previous economic downturn, when 4,000 unemployed New York workers rallied to demand that the municipal government, not even the state government, provide make-work jobs. For the first 110 years of the Republic, governmental redress almost always tended toward local government. Coxie's march, the first such march on the national capital, emphasized one of the critical changes wrought in this time. Later cemented by the elections of 1894 and 1896, Washington, D.C. became the locus of redress for ills. Four years prior to Coxie's march, Congress and the Harris administration, the Benjamin Harris administration, passed the first billion-dollar budget. Interventions such as the McKinley Tariff, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, the Sherman Antitrust Act, and handouts to Civil War veterans all showed Washington's new preeminence in public policy and spend. One of the fictions perpetuated by progressive historians is that government intervention began with the progressives of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. If that was the case, Coxie would have demanded action by the elders of Maslin or marched maybe even to Columbus, Ohio State Capitol. Yet he and all of the other marchers instead went to the seat of national government. On that fatal May 1st, so vividly described by Alexander, Coxie and other leaders of the movement were arrested for walking on the grass of the United States Capitol. Interest in the march and protest rapidly dwindled thereafter. Although it was ultimately unsuccessful, the march is notable as the first protest march on Washington. As much as Coxie strongly desired to conduct a peaceful demonstration, he did, after all, dress his daughter, his own daughter, as the goddess of peace, there was some minor violence. As Coxie and Brown tried to make their way to the Capitol steps, police, who outnumbered the marchers, wrestled Brown to the ground and arrested him. They then charged a group of Coxie Army supporters, assaulting some with billy clubs. Yet, there were no fatalities, and the injuries, though sustained, were not severe. And at the end of the day, only three people were arrested, and only one member of Coxie's army actually spent the night in jail. Contrast the peaceful and understandable attempt of the exercise of democracy with the recent Trump rally that took place in January 6, 2021. The rally's purpose was to protest what Trump believed was an election stolen by a conspiracy of voting precincts and corrupt machines and a whole lot else. He filed over 60 lawsuits across several states, yet in only one of these filings, 
a technicality. Did he actually win? The plan at the day of the rally was to ask the vice president against the precepts of the Constitution itself to refuse to certify the Electoral College. As noted in a previous podcast, Trump never directly encouraged his followers at the rally to storm the Capitol. Trump began his remarks by noting the moving of the protest from the rally site to the Capitol itself. Quote, and after this, we're going to walk down there, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol, and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women, unquote. But during the body of his speech, the president noted, quote, our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. To use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal, unquote. Again, not saying to storm and riot, but he lays out a problem, the stolen election, and then asks his crowd to move to the Capitol to influence the certification. He also urged his supporters to, quote, fight like hell and said he would, quote, never concede, unquote. After the rally, the president's supporters then swarmed the Capitol. They pushed down barricades and entered the building. Afterward, Trump did not publicly accept any responsibility for the unrest. After the mayhem calmed down, Congress did return and certified the Electoral College vote, formally affirming Joe Biden's presidential victory. Near t- nearly 24 hours after the riots, Trump released a video condemning the violence and lawlessness at the building, though he did not take any blame. The last time there was violence within the Capitol was when the Republican abolitionist Charles Sumner was beaten nearly to death in the chamber by a vicious Democratic slaver. This would be Representative Preston Brooks of South Carolina. It was a savage attack in response to a blistering speech. Brooks broke the gold-handled walking stick he used beating on Sumner. It would take nearly three years for this champion of abolition to recover. And the last time the actual capital itself was attacked was in the War of 1812, when the British entered Washington and burned the White House to the ground. Coxie understood that once violence gets attached to a movement, it can quickly lose credibility and support. Hence, Dressing up again, his own daughter as the goddess of peace, 17-year-old daughter. In 2020, after George Floyd's death, after an incident with a white police officer, the support was strong. Yet, according to a new Pew Research Center survey, quote, public support for the Black Lives Matter movement has declined. A majority of U.S. adults, 55%, now express at least some support for the movement, down from 67% in June amid nationwide demonstrations sparked by George Floyd's death. The share who strongly supports the movement stands at just 29%, down from 38% three months previous to these findings. The new survey findings come as confrontations, confrontations between protesters and police have escalated in some cities. Unquote. When the movement was around peaceful protests of perceived racial injustice, BLM had a strong majority of support, almost two-thirds of the country. Once the protests turned into rioting and looting, support began to ebb away. This is what is especially heinous about what happened in Washington on January 6th. Not only did President Trump supporters commit these acts, but by extension, through Trump, left-wing commentators will now try to attach the odium 
of the few thousand who entered the Capitol to the 74 million, myself included, who voted for Trump. As former Obama Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel stated, quote, never allow a good crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do the things you once thought was impossible, unquote. Not only did Trump and the mob hand a ready-made crisis for the left to use as a cudgel to drive their agenda, but it was also all for nothing. Despite the idiocy and cold-blooded political calculations of those like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, Mike Pence was never going to do what Trump asked. And even if Pence did, he would have been wrong to do so. Add to that, it was not going to change anything. As I write this, Joe Biden was just inaugurated. After the complete and utter failure of the lawsuits of November and December to overturn the election, cases thrown out by conservative jurists, as well as liberal ones, Biden was going to be president. Sometimes historical figures are not wrong just early. Coxie was seen as a failure in 1894, but look at what happened in the aftermath. Some good, but also some bad. From the inception of the income tax in 1913 to the inclusion of permanent greenbacks to government intervention in times of crisis and often make-believe crises, the provisions advocated for by Coxie actually became the norm. One of those government interventions was hiring unemployed men to work on infrastructure projects, a pillar of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal program. Even after his 2008 election, Barack Obama also advocated for, quote, shovel-ready, unquote, projects as part of his 2008 recession stimulus plan. Obama had not realized the environmental regulations and a thicket of local laws meant that these projects were almost impossible to undertake. His gut reaction was, use government national spend to put unemployed people to work. Let's play a little historical what-if. What if Coxie's march had not been relatively peaceful? Again, only three arrests. What if, in fact, it had turned violence? What if, in fact, his 600 supporters had stormed the Capitol? Not only would Coxie's march itself had been discredited, but it might have also attached to many of his policies, including direct government payout to the unemployed. Now, let me be clear. I'm not an advocate of that policy. If you want to employ people, better case would be to use governmental taxation or cutting thereof to small businesses to encourage them to hire the unemployed. That would be the better intervention. The failure of the New Deal policies, something that history always seems to get wrong, it shows that the direct governmental intervention to stop unemployment doesn't work. If it worked, then why, in 1938, five years into the New Deal, was unemployment still ridiculously high. My point here is, is that Coxie, his peaceful march, and his clear goals were what ended up winning the day eventually. In 1913, 5,000 demonstrators marched to support women's voting rights the day President-elect Woodrow Wilson arrived for his swearing in as president, which was to happen the following day. Seven years later, the 19th Amendment was passed, granting women's right to vote. In 1943, occurred the Rabbi's March, a protest for American and allied action to stop European Jewry's destruction. In 1963, arguably the most famous Washington rally of all time. This was when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke his I Have a Dream speech to a quarter of a million people. 
And the next year, the very next year, the first of the civil rights legislation was passed. In 1970, 100,000 demonstrators went to Washington after the shootings at Kent State to call for an end to Nixon's Cambodian incursions. Five years later, the United States exited Southeast Asia permanently. I could write on and on about Washington protests, given that since the 1960s, there have been at least one or two major ones per year, and hundreds of minor ones. Some, like King's, were more successful than others. Also, in 1970, anti-communist preacher Carl McIntyre led a rally for victory in Vietnam. This is 1970, and we all know how that war turned out. What every single one of them, the hundreds that have occurred since 1894, was that none of them attempted to storm the very heart of our republic. With the Tea Party movement of 2009, the Tea Party movement was conservative, populist, social, and political movement that emerged in that year in the United States, generally opposing excessive taxation and governmental intervention in the private sector while supporting stronger immigration controls. Not only was there a clear focus of this movement, despite its lack of central controls or a clear leader, but the movement was uniformly peaceful. So much so that leftist commentators began to lie about remarks supposedly uttered at these rallies. When proof was demanded of these transgressions, though, none was produced. In 2008, Democrats controlled both the legislative and executive branches of government. Seven years after the Tea Party, both these branches were in Republican hands. And subsequently, with three conservative justices nominated to the Supreme Court, all three, even Trump's original peaceful rallies had a clear goal. Those Americans adversely affected by globalization, the outsource of manufacturing, especially to China, and effectless foreign policy exemplified by the Iran deals and the Paris Accords were all a focus of these events. This should have been a conservative golden age. As of 2016, conservatives held the presidency, they held the Senate, and the Speaker's gavel in the House of Representatives. What was the focus of the event on January 6th? Ostensibly, it was about the value of our, of our American voting system. But after the lawsuits of November and December, and no discernible evidence whatsoever of malfeasance, that concept was based on a lie. Coxie's men were out of jobs. That was factual. Corrupt county officials gaming Dominion voting machines was not real. So the real focus of the January 6th rally was Trump's sense of anger at not prevailing in what was still, as of the first debate on September 29th, a winnable election. Again, I said this should be a golden age of conservatism. But today, aside from SCOTUS, the reverse of 2016 has now happened under Donald Trump, including the loss of two Georgian Senate seats, providing that body to the progressives. On the event of January 6, 2021 will provide the impetus progressives need to use this control for everything, from adding more liberal states to their tech company buddies censoring conservative belief systems. From Coxie's immediate perspective, in 1894, his march was a failure, but given his longevity, he lived in 97 and died in 1951, he saw his vision, whatever the merits, or in some cases demerits, prevail. The rally on January 6th, supposedly in the service of conservative values, will have the opposite effect. We have suffered 
a significant setback. And now must work all the harder to see our vision realized. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast entitled A Peaceful March on Washington. My name is Bell Alice.